morning. I'm so excited to be with you this morning. Um, I had a lot more time to prepare the sermon than the last one, so I'm excited about that as well. That's, um, that's, pretty, that's pretty great. Um, so this, uh, this series we're doing right now for Advent has made me think a lot about letters. Uh, we don't really write a lot of letters anymore, don't necessarily stick things in the mail these days, and um, in fact, I have to confess that anytime I'm forced to actually like take notes and write with pen and paper, I get pretty impatient with it because I'm just a faster typer. You know, I would, I would, um, I would rather type something. Most of our letters these days are, are digital, right? Maybe email or text message or Facebook Messenger, or whatever it is, and that doesn't necessarily make them less meaningful, but it is a little different. Um, I, I've held on to a number of meaningful letters in my life, a little uh, pile of notes that I have. Um, there's like a little box in my closet or a little file um, on my computer. Now, I'm not known to be very sentimental. Just ask anyone in my family. I pretty much throw everything away because I don't like clutter, um, and I just don't like to keep things. Um, but it, it takes a lot for me to save something. But I have a few notes that have really mattered to me over the years. Um, don't, tell, don't tell my friend this, but when I got married, a friend um, threw me a bridal shower, and she had everyone at the shower write down marriage advice. And when I came across these a few years later, I definitely threw all of them away. <laughs> except one, except one, and this was a very special note um, from my grandma that she wrote on that day. It's a little note in her cursive that I can still barely read. Her lovely cursive. And uh, my grandma and I shared a birthday for the first 20-something years of my life. I was born on her birthday. Um, and every year, she would make me a very special cake. She would ask what I would want. She would send me a very sweet card um, in the mail. And of course, it wasn't until I was much older that I realized that she made our birthday mostly about me, um, which was very sweet. This letter is special to me for a few reasons, some of them obvious, probably. Um, first of all, I had a very healthy and loving relationship with my grandma. I respected her. Um, I never questioned her love for me. Even in correction and discipline, her love for me was very clear. She could look me over as a young person and say, honey, is that a dress or a skirt or a shirt? And I would know that my dress was too short. Um, and that was very clear. And that was very loving. Um, when True and I announced that we were engaged at one of our shared birthday parties, we got engaged on my birthday, she pulled me aside and informed me that marriage was all well and good, but I'd better not be thinking of dropping out of college to be a wife. We were still in college at the time, obviously. I deserved better than that, she told me. I was my own person with dreams and goals. Our generational differences being what they were, I had no intention of dropping out of college just because I was getting married, but I felt deeply loved all the same. The second reason I hold on to this letter, and it's important to me, is that it isn't fluff. There's no laugh together every day and dance while no one's watching. There's none of that. <laughs> it's practical, it's honest, and it's caring. She tells me that it won't be all chocolate and roses in my marriage. Sometimes my husband and I will feel distant and apart. Sometimes we will feel very close and together and unified, and that the bumps in our marriage are not the end of the world, and to not lose sight of what God is doing in us and through us, and she ends it with love, love, love. Grandma. I think maybe we can all think of a letter or a note, a conversation or a text or an email where you've experienced something similar, an interaction that was really downright pastoral at the end of the day. 
It was caring and loving. We're talking about the letter of 2 John today. But there are three letters from John in the New Testament. And when I read these three letters of John, I have a similar sense of pastoral care, a similar feeling of love and advice and and depth of, of joy that I get from my grandma. Here is an author, the elder, who had a deep and healthy relationship with the church he's writing to. He cares for their well-being. He wants them to thrive. He wants them to find joy. He has some correction, but he does it with love and gentle persuasion out of love, out of, sorry, out of care for the people he loves. So this morning, I want us to listen to these words from Grandpa John, as I have begun to think of him, in this second letter of John. Feel free to open it with me if you have your Bibles. Second John. From the elder to an elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not I alone, but also all those who know the truth, because of the truth that resides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly because I have found some of your children living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded us. But now I ask you, lady, not as if I were writing a new commandment to you, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. Thus you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, people who do not confess Jesus as Christ, coming in the flesh. This person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out so that you do not lose the things we have worked for, but receive a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who remains in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house. Do not give him any greeting, because the person who gives him a greeting shares in his evil deeds. Though I have many other things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. I hope to come visit you and speak face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment of silence and think and reflect on the letter that we just heard. Father, this morning, I just thank you and praise you that you have given us people in this great cloud of witnesses that is your church. Uh, People like John, people like my grandmother, people like so many others who play such important roles in our life of teaching um, and of caring. God, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word today. Amen. So 2 John is a bit cryptic on its own, all by itself. But thankfully, we have the other letters to shed more light on what's going on here, especially 1 John. So let's dive right in. We'll just start at the beginning. John is writing to fellow believers and sister churches. That's what he means by the elect lady and her children. In these 13 verses, we just read a whole book of the Bible, by the way, in case you didn't catch on to that. In these 13 verses, and in most of John's writings, he's going to bring together love, truth, commands, and faith into action. And the meaning of each of these things, John says, is understood only in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. So he begins this letter by reminding fellow believers of deeply important things, the truth about Jesus 
and the love that we have been given and should give others. Truth and love. Truth and love. These are big things for John. For John, in the Gospel of John and in these letters, these three letters, truth means the revealed truth of Jesus Christ, meaning that which has been revealed about God and about humans through the coming of Jesus. The truth that Jesus brings is not one story among many. It's not one spiritual claim to truth, but it is the true reality against which all other claims to truth are measured. John's use of the word true as an adjective implies authentic, genuine, or real, kind of what he means. If you look at the Gospel of John, in John 1, 9, Jesus is the true light. In John 6, 32, he is the true bread. In John 15, 1, he is the true vine. For John, truth then is the entire revelation of God that Jesus has brought into the world. That is truth. Now, in our day and age, truth is associated with facts, right? It's a cognitive thing. It can be proven or disproven. But for John, truth goes way beyond the cognitive to the way life is lived. It's both intellectual and action. And for John, those two things can't be separated. So for John, the great theological truths of Christianity are deeply connected to Christian ethics or action. A central aspect of these truths, these big truths that Jesus Christ has revealed, is that all humans are sinners. And all of us are separated from a life-giving relationship with God. There can be no claim to truth that overlooks sin. If you page back a few pages in 1 John, 1 John 1.8, John writes, If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Feel, feel free to also take a look at 1 John 2.4 or 5.6, where John says very similar things. So to walk in the truth means being cleansed from sin and to stop sinning because Jesus came to destroy sin. Therefore, John argues, anyone who does not love others sins against them. Truth and action. Truth leads to action, the action of love. Verse 5, right here in this letter, John writes, Now I ask you, lady, meaning the church, not as if I were writing a new commandment, but one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. So to love in truth means to love in a manner that is consistent with the reality that Jesus has brought. It's only by recognizing the truth that we can receive God's love and mercy and grace. And then we can genuinely love ourselves and others, while also being aware of our poor ability to love, and also aware of the great worth of others and how worthy of love they are. So, for example, a neighbor may wrong us, but that doesn't disqualify them from our love because God loves us both and we are both sinners. Understanding truth allows us to receive God's love and then to love others. Through and in this truth, love, grace, mercy, and peace from God will be with us always, as John says in the beginning of the letter. So genuine love for God and others means living in the way that God has designed us to live and relating to others according to God's standards. In other words, his commandments, as John writes here. Take a look at verse 6. Now this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. You probably have heard that before, if you're familiar with the writings of John. Turn again just a page or two back to 1 John 4.21, and we read, And the commandment we have from him is this that the one who loves God would love his fellow Christian, too. Loving our fellow Christians is an expression of our love of God. In our world, 
truth and love and commands are ideas that are all separated from each other. Truth is defined by modern society as what can be scientifically verified um, or sometimes even as a relativistic construction, um, meaning that people can define truth for themselves depending on their specific context. If this is what truth is, then faith becomes entirely subjective opinion, even belief without reason. Commands become rules and laws, and love is relegated to emotion alone. But John, and really Jesus himself, who obviously taught and inspired John, takes these ideas and he makes them to mutually define each other. Second John is a beautiful example of this melding. In light of the reality that Jesus brings, we cannot have genuine faith without truth, we cannot have truth apart from love, and we cannot love without living God's commands. I'll say that again. In light of the reality that Jesus brings, we cannot have genuine faith without truth, we cannot have truth apart from love, and we cannot love without living God's commands. They're all connected. Take a look at this quote uh, from something I read this last week. It just really struck me. Maybe. Okay. God the Father loved us first and sent the Son as a human being into this world to reilluminate the truth that the fall had darkened beyond our sight. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the hub of the wheel from which truth, faith, commands, and love emanate. The incarnation not only attained eternal salvation through the cross, but integrates our individual beings and lives now. Without the incarnation, truth does devolve into as many relativistic opinions as there are people. Faith does become a blind leap, commands are reduced to feudal rules and regulations that are merely human, and love is debased by sinful hearts that are self-deceived. It's against these last things that John wants us to be steadfast, he says in these letters, firmly grounded in the revelation of Jesus. Because Jesus came, we have a full understanding of truth and love, what they are. But it's always tempting to rely on old ways of thinking, or more human ways, or easier ways. That was a little bit of a complicated concept. Easier things are nice. So this brings us to the more specific issue of 2 John, this problem of certain people who have left John's church, and they seem to want to head out to other churches and preach an idea that Jesus was not fully human, a false idea, that Jesus did not come in the flesh, as John says, meaning that Jesus did not actually take on a human body, a flesh body. This issue is likely a part of a few larger issues that the early church was having to deal with, heresies that caused all kinds of problems. Um, because Jesus came, both fully human and fully God, a new heresy arose that he was not actually fully human, and there were other new heresies as well. As time went on, these various heresies were given names, they were disputed by different churches at councils, we don't need a church history lesson this morning, you want Mike for that actually probably, he loves that stuff. Actually, this idea that Jesus could not have taken human form because humans are sinful and evil, um, because they're ordinary and all around gross, uh, is, it still continues into this modern age. This, this never really has gone away. In the 19th century, John Everett Millais, I'm totally saying his name wrong, but that's how I'm going to say it, a painter envisioned painting a young Jesus with his working class family in their carpenter shop. Malays came from money, he had no idea what it looked like to be a working class family, so he set out across London to study workshops and workers and livestock and such, 
And the painting that came out of this study is called Christ in the House of His Parents. I have a picture for you. Christ in the House of His Parents, finished in 1851. So you can see this was, this was the finished painting. Christ in the House of His Parents, finished in 1851. Um, you can see he captured incredible detail in this painting. Um, it is minute, a poor family working together. It's really quite extraordinary in its ordinariness, actually. It's just a family keeping their carpentry shop alive, being together. At this point in England, <laughs> in history, people hated this painting, hated it. They were shocked to see Jesus depicted in such an ordinary and realistic way. This was almost blasphemous for them. The press attacked, the Times describing the painting as revolting. How dare the artist depict the Holy Family as ordinary, lowly people in a humble shop with, quote, no conceivable emission of misery, of dirt, of even disease, all finished with the same loathsome minuteness. If I could read that in a British accent, I would. Charles Dickens really hated the painting. He described the young Christ as, quote, a hideous, wry-necked, blubbering, red-headed boy in a bedgown. He does have a way with words. <laughs> that Charles Dickens. It was inconceivable to Christians at that time that Jesus could be so human, so ordinary. This is the same thing that John is talking about in 2 John. This is the same heresy over the years. Here we need John's gentle and loving words, reminding us that Jesus, Jesus reveals truth. We need to measure this idea that we have bought into, maybe, against what Jesus has set down. Jesus, born in the flesh, as a human, who experienced very human things and suffered as humans do. The incarnation. Yes, Jesus is God, and he proved himself through many miracles and signs and wonders, and he is worthy of worship. And he also probably had many ordinary, everyday moments. When we're tempted to listen to other claims of truth, John wants to bring us back to the basics. Truth and love as defined by the revelation of God and Jesus. These are important skills for us in our ability to discern false teaching or something we read in the news or something we see on Facebook or whatever it is, um, just as much for us today as it was for the early church. Now, when I became a Christian in high school, this was not the idea that I faced. Instead, um, the trend among youth culture at the time was, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> t-shirts and all, friends, t-shirts, t-shirts and all. The pendulum had obviously swung in the other direction, as it tends to do, and this idea also needs correction. We can't lose sight of the Jesus who is God, the transcendence of Christ. So you may have also noticed in this letter that John calls his fellow believers to send away those who would teach lies. Well, John is quite clear that loving one another is an expression of love for God. He is also not afraid to just shut down Christians who do not embrace the true message of the gospel. For John, love does not trump truth. Rather, we cannot have truth without love or love without truth. It is not loving to help someone wander from the truth or live consistently in the deception of sin. That is not showing love to somebody. Grandpa John would have us live lives of loving discernment, keeping to what we have learned about truth and love, returning to the basics when we are confused by a new idea, a new teaching, or a new theory, a new concept, 
returning always to the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is something we are invited to do every week as we approach the communion table, is to bring our hearts back to the basics, to remember truth and love as revealed by Jesus Christ. So let's prepare our hearts for communion now. <laughs>